Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrej Matišák, and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Davy Pravda. Would Russia be willing to use nuclear weapons? And what about the West, especially the US? I talked to Alexander Wolfras, a senior researcher at the Center for Security Studies at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH Zurich. Why does he think that it seems that Russia makes a whole class of nuclear weapons exclusively for television? We also discuss if the risk of a nuclear incident is higher now and if we should get rid of nuclear weapons. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. When you hear Russian propagandists like Channel 1 anchor Dmitry Kisilov to say that the Russian underwater Poseidon weapon has the capability to spark a 500-meter tsunami that would wipe out the United Kingdom, what is your reaction to it? Well, first reaction is that it's truly breathtaking nonsense that is being put on Russian TV there. There seems to be a whole class of nuclear weapons that the Russians seem to be developing that are made exclusively for Russian television. So if you remember, the initial concept for what became the Poseidon uh, was first revealed ostensibly accidentally on Russian TV in 2015. And then later, there have been these, these propagandistic ways of putting Russian nuclear weapons into play on Russian TV. Like in 2018, there was, of course, the the famous video of a Russian nuclear weapon hitting Florida. At the time, everyone was wondering whether it would be aimed at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago or at uh, the um, American Military Command that is headquartered in Tampa, Florida. Um, And then, of course, even at the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine uh, earlier this year, when the Russian president ostensibly put his strategic forces on higher alert. That also happened on television. And, you know, usually those kinds of operationally meaningful decisions are not broadcast live on TV. So it's clear that the Russians are sending messages about nuclear weapons on television. Uh, Maybe the most recent um, little animation that we got to see about the disappearance of the British Isles was aimed at a domestic Russian audience, uh, sharing them that even though they're unable to conquer the Ukrainians as quickly um, as they thought they could, they're still a strong and powerful nation. Um, But it also fits very well with the Russian strategy of communicating to NATO and other countries that they should not stand in the way of the attempt to to conquer Ukraine. So would Poseidon be able to do what Russian propaganda is claiming? Well, no. <laughs> so the animation itself, of course, is completely ridiculous. You can't sink an island uh, by by detonating a nuclear weapon next to it. Um, it seems like the announcer in the video that we saw was probably exaggerating the size of the warhead and also exaggerating the size of the tsunami effect. Um, that could be expected uh, to wipe out Great Britain and Ireland. And you wonder what the poor Irish did to deserve that. But certainly it is a terrible weapon that the Russians have developed there. Um, It could cause tremendous damage. Um, It's especially monstrous in the way it's designed to leave behind especially high radiation 
uh, levels in the area that it affects. So, you know, that much is true. But you know, we shouldn't forget that Russia has for a long time had the ability to put the United Kingdom uh, into ruins uh, with its conventional massive nuclear arsenal. But of course, one shouldn't forget that uh, the UK very much can do the same to the Russians. And so, you know, all the, the fancy animations and exotic underwater weapons shouldn't obscure that deeper structural reality. Talking about animations and perhaps obscure weapons, Moscow is creating a lot of hype also about its hypersonic missiles, how they could target Western European cities faster, basically in seconds. Again, hard to hit it. And are those hypersonic missiles somewhat of a game changer, as they are sometimes described? For the most part, the game stays the same. Um, so first, from the technical perspective, these kinds of missiles uh, have been terribly misbranded as hypersonic because most strategic nuclear weapons that exit the atmosphere and re-enter it travel at hypersonic speeds. So what's really different about them is really more their maneuverability. It's most likely that the Russians and the Chinese are de developing them in order to get around American missile defenses. But that doesn't mean that their existing conventional missiles are that vulnerable to existing missile defenses either. And, you know, sh sure, some of the, the systems that they're threatening Western Europe with might be a little faster, but in the end, they're already able to destroy Western European cities if they wanted to, whether it takes them 100 seconds or 100 minutes to do that, in my view, doesn't really change uh, the strategic balance all that much. And so the, the reason these systems are being hyped, I believe, is more about scaring Europe uh, into being cautious and refraining from supporting the Ukrainians. But you said that Russians and Chinese are working on those more maneuverable missiles. Could these technological competitions be a future of the nuclear arms race? I will probably simplify this quite a bit, but let's say that the nuclear powers will on one hand try to produce faster and better maneuverable missiles, and on the other hand, better defenses. I think that's, that's a really good way of framing it and a really important question to be asking at this time. Uh, the United States has not invested as deeply into the so-called hypersonic capability. Um, in part, that is because it doesn't face the prospect of an adversary that has uh, even a remote chance at intercepting the missiles that it's currently able to fire. So for that reason, it's not seen as a problem to solve for the American military. It's also really worth emphasizing that current existing American missile defenses, certainly at the intercontinental level, are in an embryonic stage. They are, for the most part, powerless against Russian and Chinese incoming missiles. So the Russians and the Chinese are really looking one generation down the line, um, driven by a worry that American missile defenses will get much better. And that's an active technical debate. Some people believe that missile defenses ultimately cannot be made effective enough to be a meaningful influence on the strategic nuclear balance. You know, maybe down the line, the Americans will be able to figure out a missile system that can intercept a small number of incoming missiles, say from North Korea, um, and that'll be meaningful. But just the, the quantities that are available to, to the Russians and to some extent the, the Chinese don't make missile defenses kind of a worthy long-term investment for, for the United States. So yes, I imagine that there will be a, a military technical competition involving maneuverable hypersonic missiles and the further development of American missile defenses. But I don't think that'll be the most important factor shaping the strategic relationship between the United States and Russia for a long time to come.
So what might be the most important factor here? The political relationship is ultimately what it's all about. And that, of course, is exactly what is most under strain at the moment between the United States and Russia and you know, Russia and the, the general international system that has been in place since the Second World War. Uh, so that's really where, where my biggest concern is. And you know, on the, the Chinese-American side, there's this whole question of China reclaiming its place in the world as a leading great power and the, the way it puts it into tension with the United States as a Pacific power and as a guarantor of the security of its allies in East Asia. Do you think there is any difference when we compare the situation regarding nuclear weapons during the Cold War period with the current situation? Probably the closest humanity was to a nuclear war was the Cuban crisis in 1962, and there was also this 1983 Soviet nuclear files or arm incident. I have to admit that I always find the story of Stanislav Petro a bit overhyped, but it created some problems. How close are we now to the nuclear incident? On the one hand, of course, there's a long history between Washington and Moscow trying to live with one another in strategic competition while both have nuclear weapons. Uh, so there's relevant history there that we can revisit and examine. And in particular, I think the more we've learned about what was happening behind the scenes on both sides during the Cold War, the scarier it becomes in retrospect. Um, but we should also keep in mind that Russia today is not the Soviet Union, um, and that can make things less scary in some ways, but also more scary. And you know, in some ways, maybe Russia is behaving more like the Soviet Union did under Stalin, um, where it was more expansionist, um, rather than kind of the later sclerotic self-satisfied Soviet Union that was really more concerned about holding on to the parts of the world that it already controlled rather than being interested in expanding its, its sphere of influence that way. Um, you know, sure, you know, looking back at something like Cuba, that's certainly one of those incidents that, however scary it was at the time, the more we, we read the archives and understand what was happening in Cuba and the fact that nuclear weapons were already stationed in Cuba that the launch authority had been given to the local commanders, that Fidel Castro was willing to sacrifice his own country for the sake of the revolution, if it came to it, was pushing for the use of nuclear weapons. And you know, all this stuff, in retrospect, seems quite frightening. 1983, as you say, I think it's right to be somewhat skeptical about the, the nature of the, the nuclear alarm. And it was Stanislav Petrov who uh, allegedly helped save the world from a U.S.-Soviet nuclear exchange. You know, I think he did a very good thing. And it's also worthwhile keeping in mind that in 1983, it wasn't just this, this Abel Archer exercise uh, that heightened tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but also a series of events in the Far East um, that were started by American military exercises there, uh, accidental or intentional incursions into Soviet airspace that, of course, culminated in the shootdown of the Korean airliner uh, by the Soviets. Um, so in a, in a sense, that is probably a more relevant precedent for the situation we're facing today, where a lot of bad things are happening at the same time. And they these bad things can start to interact in unforeseen ways in order to really get us to a bad situation. But you know, the problem is, at least in my view, by the time we find ourselves into a, in a genuine nuclear crisis, it's probably already too late. So yeah, that's kind of the caveat I would put on looking back at history and saying, oh, that was a close call. But everything ended up all right, so maybe it wasn't all that dangerous, is that when, if and when it finally happens, and I certainly hope it doesn't, things will happen really quickly and probably not in the way that we can foresee at the moment, because if the two of us sitting here can foresee it, 
it's probably also exactly the sort of thing that's on the mind of Russian and American militaries and they're working to prevent it. Uh, but as we did see in Cuba and in 1983, it tends to be the weirdest things happening in, in corners that aren't on any, anyone's mind that interact and can produce really dangerous situations. So if you try to assess this, how willing might Russian be to use nukes and under what circumstances? That's a difficult and important question. Uh, so Russian doctrine, at least, the things that the Russian military has written down and says pretty regularly is that nuclear weapons use is reserved for scenarios in which the existence of the Russian state is threatened. That should generally give us some cause for, for calm. But there are a couple of, not just footnotes, but um, some, yeah, some, some divergent uh, aspects that we should consider um, that might make us less calm. Uh, and so first, just writing down doctrine doesn't stop anyone from improvising nuclear use if you deem it necessary. Even going back to how we started the conversation about what's being shown on Russian TV, there's been a lot of conversation about trying to intimidate Ukraine with a, with a tactical nuclear weapon, for example, as a purely political signal. You know, there's hard to imagine any kind of military target that the Russians couldn't reach with conventional munitions. But you know, maybe the idea is that the Russians will detonate a tactical nuclear weapon to signal to the Ukrainians, we're really willing to go all the way here. And that could maybe play into a Russian negotiation strategy or something. And then finally, the thing that worries me the most is how much the current Russian president thinks of himself as the embodiment of the Russian state. And so that might very well lower the threshold of what he considers an existential risk to the Russian state. Uh, you know, the continuation of him and his ruling regime being co-equal with the Russian state existing. Um, and so I'm not suggesting that there are any threats to him from, you know, from NATO or, or from Ukrainians, but if they're internal Russian processes uh, that, that make it less likely that he'll be able to continue uh, in his role, uh, he might lash out. Um, at the outside in order to secure that position. So that's that's my primary concern. Yeah, I think this is a very, very good point. But it also leads me to a question about the authorization of the nuclear attack. According to unconfirmed info, Russians have three nuclear beef cases. One for the Russian president, one for the minister of defense, and another one for the chief of general staff. What do we know about how Russians authorize the use of nuclear arsenal? It's a little hazy. And it's certainly not my my direct expertise. Um, but one thing we can say is that those two cases are all for the strategic nuclear forces of the Russian Federation. And one thing we, we do believe uh, to be the case is that they have a rather sophisticated system in which it's not only about who keys what into what suitcase, uh, but that you also need to have confirmation from Russian early warning systems that a strategic nuclear attack is underway before the Russian strategic nu nuclear arsenal can be, be activated and launched. At least that's something that's that seems to be based on credible reports coming out of Russia. One possible concern there, of course, is that the Russian early warning systems may not be that good. So the odds of them receiving a false alarm uh, are probably a little bit higher. And then, of course, there are the, the tactical nuclear weapons, of which Russia still has very many. And those are exactly the ones that might come into play in Ukraine um, or actually on a battlefield should it escalate beyond Ukraine. And at the moment, as far as we know, most of the, the nuclear warheads are still being stored separately from the missiles and other delivery systems. So there would have to be a decision probably at the presidential level in Russia to 
have those released and distributed to, to forces in the field. Um, and there you can imagine that the, the president would still say, wait, before using them, wait for, for my explicit authorization, or he could well say to the local commanders, use them at your discretion. So yeah, the tactical and strategic nuclear weapons seem to be governed rather differently in Russia. Could you please say a few words about the difference between strategic and tactical nuclear weapons? Absolutely. So the difference is mostly about how they are delivered to their target. The strategic systems tend to be aimed at being able to travel great distances, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, these are mostly aimed at targets like the United States, uh, where the idea is to, to deter uh, the U.S. Um, or they might be aimed at other cities or military targets and, like I said, would be delivered with intercontinental ballistic missiles, or they might be fired out of a strategic bomber something that flies very high and very far and then um, drops a, a cruise missile and delivers the, the warhead that way. Tactical nuclear weapons are, are meant for, for battlefield use, for, for war fighting. Sometimes they're also called substrategic weapons. Um, a lot of these in the Russian arsenals are uh, naval weapons. So they would be used, for example, against a, an American aircraft carrier, um, for instance. Um, or they, they might be used in a short-range tactical uh, missile to, to target maybe a, a massed group of, of armor, for instance. And that was, a very, that was more what it was like in the, in the Cold War. But just because these are shorter-range weapons and battlefield-use weapons doesn't necessarily mean that they're all that small. Generally speaking, the, the resulting explosion would still be on the order of the, the Hiroshima bomb, for example. Um, so... Yes, strategic weapons have become much, much larger, but tactical nuclear weapons themselves are quite a sizable uh, nuclear event as well. Alex, I asked you about Russian nuclear weapons, but what about us? I mean the West. How willing might the West be to use nuclear weapons, especially the US? You know, in the abstract, that's rather difficult to, to answer. Uh, generally speaking, it is very hard to imagine the United States using nuclear weapons first. In fact, the Biden administration came into office trying to change American nuclear weapons doctrine to say that they would not be the first to use nuclear weapons um, or uh, say that really the only use that the, uh, that the United States foresees for nuclear weapons is to respond to a nuclear attack. Um, that hasn't really panned out, but on the whole, it's clear that the Biden administration at least is not especially eager to use nuclear weapons. And it makes sense because the United States has plenty of conventionally armed munitions that can achieve most conceivable military objectives for the United States. So, you know, I've seen kind of the idea out there that if Russia were to use a tactical nuclear weapon, that that would somehow force the United States to respond. And I, I just don't think that's true. I think the United States will, will try to rely on on non-nuclear systems for as long as possible. It really cares about maintaining a taboo against nuclear weapons use. Um, so I think we can, you know, without, without losing confidence that the U.S. would use nuclear weapons in the event of uh, sort of a big NATO-Russia uh, confrontation that, that went to the nuclear level, uh, there, there is, I'd say, caution and hesitancy to, to be the first to enter the nuclear, yeah, the nuclear use domain. And what about the authorization of a nuclear attack on the American side? We know that this decision is solely up to the President of the United States. But there is also a debate that with a President like Donald Trump or whoever, 
it might be a risky system. Is it risky? All right, first you have to kind of imagine what it would be like to be the American president and be woken up in the middle of the night and be told it looks like there's an incoming nuclear attack. And by the time it's confirmed and you actually have to decide on whether you want to launch your missiles uh, preemptively in response, you have about 10 minutes um, to, to gather all the information and to, to make that decision. So that really doesn't seem like a great system, even for, for the most ideal philosopher king that we can imagine, let alone for someone like Donald Trump. But at the same time, it makes sense to be able to respond quickly and nimbly to an incoming nuclear attack. That is exactly what makes the American nuclear deterrent credible, is that it wouldn't have to go through a committee in Congress. You know, I'm sure there are additional safeguards that could be built into the system to make it slightly less risky. But ultimately, the best safeguard that the world has at the moment is the wisdom of the American voter. And whether you're confident in that or not, I suppose, is an individual judgment. We have been talking about the US, the West, and Russia, but of course there are other nuclear powers. Discussing them would be for another debate, but at least maybe a few words about China. Where is Beijing in all of this? What are its priorities in the nuclear realm? Um, so for the longest time, China had a much smaller arsenal than anyone had expected them to build, but they are now changing. Um, they're, they're expanding the arsenal and That in part seems to be a reaction, just like with these exotic Russian weapon systems against the prospect of American missile defenses being able to intercept um, a small number of, of their missiles. And of course, China as a whole is becoming more assertive on the international stage. So it kind of fits their, their political objectives quite nicely to, to grow their arsenal. Alex, maybe to conclude our debate, should the world try as hard as possible to get rid of nuclear weapons? Or do they somewhat function as peacemakers? It's, it seems fairly clear that in some circumstances, nuclear weapons have helped stabilize the world through deterrence and contributed to, to peace. But in part, that was built on the idea of nuclear weapons mostly being defensive, that it would protect a country against attack. What we're seeing Russia do now is use its nuclear weapons as a shield for conquest. And that You know, if other countries take on that strategy, if the North Koreans see this and say, hey, we can use our nuclear weapons to stop the U.S. from intervening in our conquest of South Korea, for example, then nuclear weapons will certainly end up being a rather destabilized force. Yeah, I mean, the, the bigger question, if we could snap our fingers and change the laws of physics to make nuclear fission impossible overnight, and therefore nuclear weapons kind of inert and useless, I do believe the world would be better. You know, nuclear weapons can cause as many problems as they solve. And so I do believe that we should be working very hard on reducing nuclear arsenals eventually towards zero. But we should be doing that with a plan for managing the security consequences of doing so. And that's why I'm a little bit skeptical about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons approach um, that just sort of says, well, nuclear weapons are bad and we should get rid of them because they can have bad consequences without really thinking through why countries currently have nuclear weapons, what kind of problems they believe these weapons are solving for them, and offering alternatives um, for, for security, um, rather than just wishing away the problem. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all the other platforms. And if you enjoy what I do, Please support me on coffee. Thank you.
for the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.